Tonight on Farage, we're investigating, is the UK-US special relationship still alive? And I say this because a war of words has now broken out between Washington and London, and it appears our relationship is in some trouble. And joining me for a virtual down-the-line, long-distance talking pints will be the famed former White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer. I've always believed in the special relationship. Perhaps that's because I'm unashamedly pro-American, because nearly 40 years ago, I started working for American companies, and I can fast forward that through to a friendship with Donald Trump, the 45th US president. I have to say, I've been horrified that a major decision could have been made like this without Biden even consulting Boris Johnson or indeed the rest of our NATO allies. I feel right at the moment, we couldn't trust America, not with this man in charge. And after all, he's always been much more interested in Irish Republicanism and the European Union than he has the United Kingdom. We've seen our generosity, allowing Americans to fly into London if they're double jabbed without quarantining and no reciprocity. The trade deal between the UK and the USA, well, frankly, it's going nowhere. Um, Obama did say we'd be at the back of the queue, and it would appear his vice president at the time, one Joe Biden, takes the same view. I can't think of a time in my life when the special relationship was in more trouble than it is. Now, in truth, there have been times over the years when we have disagreed. The Americans very much opposed our intervention in Suez, and we, I think very wisely, avoided getting involved in Vietnam. So the relationship has its ups and downs. There's a certain chemistry that exists between certain prime ministers and presidents. At times, and at others, it's just not there. So I wonder, is the special relationship damaged beyond repair, or is this just short-term, a short-term problem that we can overcome? Well, joining me first tonight in our special investigation is Sir Christopher Meyer, and he was the British ambassador to the United States from 1997 until 2003. Well, joining me to discuss, is the UK-US special relationship still alive? And what did it ever mean in the first place? Well, I've got a very, very good witness on this, I think. Sir Christopher Mayer, who was the UK ambassador from 1997 all the way through till 2003 and knows Washington DC pretty well. Sir Christopher, Thank you for coming on and joining me on GB News. It's a great pleasure, Nigel. Now, tell me, you were there during a very dramatic period. Um, during your term, the horrors of 9-11 unfolded at the Pentagon and in New York. And, of course, the invasion of Afghanistan happened during your period. And, indeed, I guess the build-up uh, to what became the Iraq War as well. How do you, how do you feel, 20 years on our engagement in Afghanistan has ended? Well, I think the Afghanistan two-decade episode has ended in defeat. Um, I do not believe we can uh, put lipstick on the pig here and call it something else. We have been defeated politically and we have been defeated militarily, partly because the essential link that you need between military means and political objectives ne never matched. There was no proper synchronization. So it's come out badly. 
Yeah, and has Joe Biden come out of this badly? Because there's a lot of us, a lot of us on this side of the Atlantic saying that he's disrespected not just the United Kingdom, but also the other NATO members too, by making this decision unilaterally and not even consulting anybody. Well, I have to say that unilateralism is woven into the fabric of American foreign policy. And we've seen many episodes uh, over the 70 years or so since the Second World War where what is meant to be a very close relationship, either with NATO, the institution, or with us, the Brits, yep. is, as it were, <laughs> violated by some unilateral act that really makes us very, very irritable. This is not the first time. Um, but I think that Biden is more culpable than some other president, presidents before him because he started his administration saying, hey, America is back and we're going to rebuild our friendships and alliances with uh, NATO, with the European Union. When Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, came to London for the first time, he was extravagant in his praise of the special relationship, which I have to say made me immediately suspicious. Um, because I used to know him quite well when he was a young man in short pants. Uh, but um, what, what, what was I saying? I think the problem with Biden, which he compounded last night in his address to the American people um, the, on August the 31st to mark the final departure of American forces, yeah. he made, after extravagantly praising, I use that word again, uh, American troops, uh, people who helped American troops, civilians, American embassy, blah, 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 blah. There was no mention whatsoever of the Allies. There was no mention of us. There was no mention of NATO. Um, and I thought this kind of uh, compounded the carelessness. I wouldn't say it was a, it's not a calculated insult, but they just didn't think of other people outside the United States. And I think, uh, uh, the fundamental reason for this is that Biden, whom I knew as a very canny operator in Washington as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, was responding through an entirely domestic political prism. Yes, I mean, I do wonder whether this has damaged him internationally enormously, but perhaps not domestically as much as we might think, because a lot of people did feel that 20 years was far too long. Many on this side of the pond felt the same way. But... But, you know, I look back through this history and, you know, Suez, very clearly, the Americans did not support us. Vietnam, we did not support America. Um, Ronald Reagan infuriated Margaret Thatcher in the mid-1980s with the you know, Grenada uh, military escapade. So we have had these episodes over the years when we've disagreed quite strongly, but... It would be true to say, wouldn't it, that in most military conflicts since 1917, there have been the exceptions, but in most of those conflicts, we have worked side by side. And certainly, whenever I've spoken to senior British commanders or senior American commanders, it's always struck me, Sir Christopher, been a great mutual respect between the two. They generally enjoy working with each other. Uh, and I just wonder, I mean, let us say in six months' time, Biden decides that a new international terror cell has opened up somewhere and that we need to launch a new military uh, at attack of some kind and none of us can predict the future. But let's just say that Joe Biden came knocking on the door of number 10 um, and in Brussels to NATO saying, look guys, we have to go and do this in the interest of the safety of the world. Right at the moment, I just can't see a British Parliament saying yes. 
I think what's broken down here is trust, perhaps in a way that we haven't seen before. That's my conjecture. Well, you may well be right. And there's an interest, incidentally, as a phrase, special relationship I've never liked, because I think it served its purpose uh, after the Second World War for a few years, uh, that it's outlived its usefulness, it raises expectations of what we can agree on, um, and it becomes a bit of a snare and delusion, certainly for the, on, the, on our side, on the European side. Um, uh, but there are areas of cooperation between us and the Americans which are incredibly close, and they may be closer than the United States has with any other power, bar perhaps Israel. I mean, I, you know, one can't measure this um, exactly. So you're quite right about military cooperation and all that, but that in and of itself um, does not create a special relationship. And that's why I always want to get away from this phrase and say, yes, the United States is our single most important partner and ally, and we work very closely with them, particularly on intelligence and military matters, but we do have stinking rows on things like trade uh, from time to time, and they do act unilaterally. I mean, I would add to your list of unilateral action, for example, in 2002, when I think the Royal Marines had just arrived in Afghanistan to work with American troops, the US slapped tariffs on, on our steel exports. And I remember ringing the White House and saying, what the F is this? For God's sake, what are you doing? Oh, yes, you know, something had happened in another part of the woods and it was a response to the domestic lobby. But yeah. to your point about a terrorist attack somewhere else, Biden's address last night was very, very interesting because he basically said, and I think this has been a bit underreported, that we are done with nation building, trying to convert places like Afghanistan into a kind of image, a reflection of ourselves because it's mission impossible. But our, we will instead act only on a hard national interest. And one hard national interest is if we are threatened or hit by terrorists. Now, I don't think that we in London could disagree with that. I mean, we should be done with nation building as well. It's cost hundreds of lives of British soldiers in Afghanistan, but we should act on our hard national interests. By and large, they coincide with those of the United States. Not always, but if there were an attack, say from the Yemen or one somewhere in that vast desert space of Sahelian countries in the Northwest uh, Africa, um, or from Somalia or from the uh, Filipino archipelago, something like that. It could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be Afghanistan, for Pete's sake. Sure. Um, then, you know, then I think we would be well prepared to act with them because it would be a specific, realistic thing to respond to rather than some airy-fairy thing about... So we would trust them again? Oh, I, I, think, I think that the experience that we have with them over the years, over the decades... Um, is sufficient to overcome um, you know, the significant bruising which this has inflicted on okay. NATO allies. Okay, and just a, final, just a final thought on things. I mean, the last American president, uh, Donald J. Trump, wasn't to everyone's tastes, a uh, little bit brash, uh, somewhat out there. I, of course, got on terribly well with him, but, but, but you know, I understand he wasn't everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> but, but what was clear was he loved the United Kingdom. He was obsessed with the Queen. Um, he talked regularly about his mother, the Scottish ancestry. He invested money in Scotland. And he was desperate to do a trade deal with the United Kingdom. And it didn't happen 
because the whole Brexit process took years longer uh, than many of us wanted it, uh, wanted it to, to complete. But I am very struck that Biden's instincts when it comes to the UK are pro-Irish nationalism, even when that comes to some of the very unsavoury aspects of it, are pro-Brussels, pro-European Union. And it would appear that on trade, uh, on, on a trade deal, he's not prepared to lift a finger. It seems, that, it seems that we genuinely are at the back of the queue, as Obama warned those years ago. On travel, you know, we have opened up to the USA. If you're double jabbed, you can come to London right now without having to quarantine. There is no reciprocity whatsoever. Are we, are we looking at an American president who is instinctively anti-British? I don't know. To be quite honest with you, I don't know. When I knew him as a senator, he was perfectly affable. He was not in that sort of caucus of very strong pro-Irish senators and congressmen who uh, took their brief effectively from Sinn Féin, the Sinn Féin office in, uh, in, in DC. He wasn't like them. But I mean, when I, when I look at the whole record of presidents and prime ministers going back to 1945, you see some who couldn't stand each other and some who got on really well and, and a lot in, in, in between. And I think here, Nigel, you've got to distinguish between what you see above the surface and what is going on beneath the waves. I mean, the relationship is a bit like an iceberg and underneath the water, not visible, is this massive, uh, uh, um, what's the word, uh, mass of cooperation that goes on with mutual investment, defense and intelligence. And that kind of goes on irrespective of who's yeah. the president, who's the prime minister. And we may be going through one of those phases now where president and prime minister don't really get on. Prime minister, I president doesn't, doesn't really like so I'm told he's got, hasn't he got descendants in Sussex or somewhere like that? Yeah, I, 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 I think they're somewhat distant, but yes, he does. Um, and hey, you know, he removed the Churchill bust from the Oval Office on day one, which, which I think told me quite a lot. But uh, so Christopher, thank you for your thoughts and observations and sharing that with our viewers. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel, very much. So, is the US-UK special relationship still alive? Well, Sir Christopher Mayer just said to us that it was bruised, but he thought in many ways life would go on as normal. I have to say, I do think that culturally and business-wise things will be unaffected, frankly, by who is in at the White House and who is in number 10, although if we had a trade deal, of course, things might be slightly different. So, let's get a different perspective on this. I'm going to get here today with me Greg Swenson, Chairman of Republicans Overseas UK. And you've been here in the merchant banking industry in London for the last six years. I, I guess in a way, Greg, you sort of, you're part of that special relationship. I feel, I mean, I worked for Drexel, Burnham Lambert in the 1980s. Um, so I spent most of my life before politics working for American companies. And I think it's true to say that we're still, unbelievably, the UK is still the biggest foreign investor in the United States of America. You're the, you're the biggest foreign investors here. And from what I can see, American private equity wants to buy up all of our supermarket chains in virtually all of our country. So, I mean, in business terms, 
the relationship is good, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, yes, a trade deal would be nice, and I think there might be a, a bit of a speed bump. I think, you know, you mentioned a, there, it's been a bruising. I think that's a good, good word. I, I think long term, everything will be fine. But I, I can't see a trade deal happening in the near future, first of all. Because? Because I think Biden is bruised as well. And, and I think he, he obviously doesn't have, he doesn't favor the UK like Trump did. He doesn't have the UK at the top of his list. He's got other things. For a guy who claimed he was going to be back you know, with diplomacy. America and working, is back. Yeah, We're and, and rejoining working the world. Working with his allies. After that nasty man from New York. Yeah, and, and it, I just, I find, I find that it's, it's been disappointing, first of all. You know, I would like to, to have thought that a trade deal with the UK was on the top of his list. And, and, you know, again, back to his argument, I'm going to be back with our allies and, and working in these multilateral forums. I don't really buy that, and I think this is a speed bump. I, I think that the Afghanistan disaster will, will definitely slow things down for him. Uh, you know, he, he might make an attempt at, at trying to get past it and ignore it. But, you know, if, if you look at the special relationship, in the long term, it Do you will, believe in that special relationship? I do. I absolutely do. And I think I'm a good example of it, as you, as you said. Mm. You know, and I've, I've been here for six years. I don't see leaving anytime soon. Um, we've got, you know, the relationship, the, the number of expats that, that are here, American expats, um, I don't see that changing. So look, if, if you look at the, you know, the military and security aspect, definitely hitting a speed bump right now. The economic aspect, I think, is positive in the long run, maybe a, a minor speed bump here. And then, of course, you know, you have to talk about energy independence, and I think that has an effect on, on the UK as well. So, but my biggest worry is the next three and a half years. And, and that's, you know, I think, you know, we've seen what, what damage President Biden has done in just seven months. And, and that it's a, you know, this, this debacle well, the last month has been a massive speed bump. And, um, but I guess the midterms, I mean, given the way the American electoral yeah. cycle works, I mean, it's almost, it almost never stops in America. Right. I mean, elections right. go off. Start, you know? Yeah, it starts on November 4th. Yeah. Right. We, we get a bit of a breather in this country. Yeah, we've been talking about the midterms now for nine months. Yeah, and, well, that's right. But yeah. those midterms are a chance for your party yes. to make gains. And, 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 you know, the Senate is completely split down the middle. Right. Even in the House of Representatives, the Democrat majority is four or five seats. It's, 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 it's a meaningless. Yeah. yeah. So uh, no. It's but a good is your party? I mean, you know, Donald Trump is this dominant, domineering, alpha male leader, and some I like him. You know, some people love him, and others can't stand him. And we had the Never Trumper movement within mm -hmm. your own sure. party, as you yep. well know. Um, even Mitch McConnell, you know, your most senior figure on Capitol Hill is not right. exactly a fan um, of Donald Trump. Now, it doesn't look to me, although the leadership of the Republican Party is going to change between now and then. I don't think there's any prospects in no. the next year. Right. Afterwards, you know, we start running down towards the presidential election and we sure. see, you know, is Ron DeSantis going to run and Mike Pompeo and all of these things. But how do the Republicans, I mean, let's just say Biden's reputation internationally is, is severely bruised, if right. not shattered. I think, that, I think everyone agrees yeah. with that. No doubt. Whatever side of the fence they're on, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, to do this without even consulting uh, with us or the rest of NATO clearly was wrong. Domestically, we don't yet know how much harm it's done him. Because after all, a lot of Americans did want to leave Afghanistan. A lot of Americans on both sides of the political divide sure. did want to leave Afghanistan. There's a debate about how. Mm -hmm. But your leader, Donald Trump, doesn't have a voice. Right. He's been kicked off Twitter, kicked off Facebook. 
How does he rally your party if he doesn't have that voice? Yeah, I mean, look, look there's no doubt with, with the, the blackballing from Facebook and Twitter, that's, that's definitely an issue. I also think the midterms are, are going to be a bit of a distraction. It's going to be hard for him to fundraise before the, the November 2022 election. Um, and, but this is a good sign for Republicans. I wish it wasn't still 14 months away. And, and they don't take office till January of 23. So a lot of damage can be done between now and then, both domestically in the U.S. as well as to the special relationship. You know, and that's what I'm fearful about. So, yeah, on one hand, I said it's three and a half years yep. more of Biden. But that can change dramatically with the midterms. I'm quite sure the Republicans will pick up the House and the Senate, and it might be pretty dramatic. It might not just be, you know, five and we could find, seats. yeah. And I mean, the electoral cycle suggests that nearly yeah. always happens anyway. Sure. And you may, and we may well find that actually the Democrats dump Biden, or, or effectively ease him out. Yeah. And so we get President Harris. Yeah. Which and, I think it'd be a lot worse. Which is an unknown quantity, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, it is an unknown quantity, mm. but she is even more radical than, you know, than, than Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in many ways. And she's and her apparently her staff, her entire team is is almost anti, so anti-establishment. At least you could argue with Biden and his team, even though they've completely... Well, Trump was pretty anti-establishment. Of course. And in, I mean, in he wanted ways, to drain the swamp. That's, and... that's very healthy. And I think, you know, that that, that could be a, a good thing. And, and, you'll, and you see in the Biden administration now, they're all basically former Obama people that have been hanging around Washington yeah. for their whole careers, mostly academics. Very few have worked in the private sector as opposed to Trump's people. So, you know, there's, there's apples, they're really apples and oranges. But my fear with Kamala Harris is that she is so radical. And remember, she didn't get to even make it to the Iowa caucus, know. you know. Biden came in fifth. No, she, I mean, she's not popular in her no, own party. No, no. They don't care about geopolitical issues. All they really care about is wokeism and CRT and all the other insanity that we've unfortunately exported to the UK. But, well, we, so, we, we certainly have. Yeah. Well, I, and this, of course, is the one part of the special relationship that is unbreakable, yeah. and that is the cultural link, yeah. you know, and we copy a lot of your stuff. But equally, mm -hmm. it did make me laugh. I was going around the fortnight before the November election following Trump around the rallies. Mm -hmm. And it was all about America, America first, you know, those beautiful words made in the USA and all the stuff he was doing. And the music, the big part of it was that the aeroplane would land at the airstrip and the, and the crowd would be there in freezing cold temperatures. And, but it was a sure. remarkable sight. Yeah. And Trump loves music. You know, this all American figure loves music. So as Air Force One appears on the horizon, the music plays, and as the plane lands, the music plays. And what was the music he was playing? Well, it was Elton John, it was mm -hmm. David Bowie, yeah, it was funny. Phil Collins. I mean, there were more. So culturally, yeah. it's sometimes difficult to determine these days what is American and what is British. I mean, that's how close we are. It's, it's fantastic, and, and that will continue, and I surely That will continue. Does. Business will continue, yeah. and as I say, a trade deal, certainly in financial services, I think would make quite a big difference. But how could we, I mean, let's just say, let's just speculate that something horrible happens in the next six months. We pray that it doesn't, but let's just say there is some international terror outrage uh, and we can pin down, you know, that it came from uh, the Yemen or Afghanistan or, 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 I mean, who knows where. Mm -hmm. And President Biden says, you know, this is a threat to all of us. We now... I'm afraid have to once again go into 
a military enterprise. How could we trust America right now? And why should we trust America right now? Yeah, it's difficult, and, you know, and, and I wouldn't if I were our, our allies, for sure. I mean, and look what happened in Parliament two weeks ago. That's unprecedented. You know, to, to be publicly shamed like that has never happened to a U.S. president in Parliament. But it was hard to disagree with them. You know, I, I understood why they were doing it. And remember what Biden said in April. This will not be a, ha a hasty rush to the exit. He said, in full co coordination with our allies yes. and our partners. That was the G7 assurance, wasn't yeah, it? Down it, at Carbis Bank. Constantly. And, and, and so he's, he's repeated this. He's constantly lying about this. And lying? I think he's, oh, I mean, you just saw in the last few weeks with his, his so-called press conferences or his teleprompter speeches. He's lying to the American people. He's taking, he's blaming everybody else for the debacle in Afghanistan, except for himself and the Taliban, by the way, which I found particularly ironic. On you allies. Ironic. On yeah. you allies. And, and, you know, and, and look, you know, just closing Bagram in the middle of the night, not telling the UK about it, you know, not talking to, to Prime Minister Johnson on the phone or ignoring him for a day and a half before finally talking to him denying his request to extend the deadline. I mean, these are not things you do with your allies. For all the, for all the hard time that President Trump got about you know, not working with, with his allies, no, he, by making America stronger, peace through strength, that was to great benefit of our, of our allies, especially okay. the UK. So and Greg, I in, in, I, in summation, I hope, I hope it comes back. It might have to wait until 2023 when the, when the Republicans take Congress again, or it might even have to wait till 2025 after the election. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Nigel. Well, we just spoke to Sir Christopher Mayer, former British ambassador to Washington, and he feels the relationship is bruised, but he doesn't think irreparably broken. Well, let's go now to Hank Schweinkopf, a Democrat strategist, somebody who's worked in the past with Bill Clinton and indeed with Michael Bloomberg. Hank, welcome to GB News. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me in. Now, can you understand why, Hank, on this side of the pond, uh, we at the moment are uh, vast sections of our media, very senior cabinet ministers. We are, uh, to put it mildly, very unhappy that what we see and what we, what we believe to be our closest ally in the world, at the end of an operation that we've been together with side by side for 20 years and, to be frank, Hank, since 1917 on virtually every major uh, you know, global event we've, we've worked together, we share intelligence with each other at a high level. And, and President Biden has unilaterally taken this decision, not conferred with us or indeed NATO allies. And can you understand why we're asking the question, you know, is the special relationship between us and the USA, is it just a fantasy? Doesn't it matter to Biden and the Democrats anymore? It better start mattering. You know, we're celebrating 80 years, really, of the Atlantic Charter, the extraordinary relationship in, I guess, five-time meetings between uh, Churchill and Roosevelt that shaped the world and won the battle against the Nazis and fascists throughout the world and created a new dem democratic surge. Uh, and frankly, uh, this the relationship becomes even more important now. The threats are just as significant from China, Russia. The UK has been a staunch ally of the United States. And frankly, we should not forget the UK soldiers and members of the NATO alliance who paid with their blood and lives because the Americans asked them to be there. And this is the first time the UN, the NATO charter provision calling for others to participate has ever been used in the history of NATO. 
it's an extraordinary moment. And uh, I think ultimately what will occur is people will come to their senses and understand that the world, the world, uh, the reason why we've been together is to go against the enemies of, uh, frankly, of, of, of uh, freedom and to protect our economic interests. And those economic interests and those enemies of freedom have never been more more strong or more ready to attack than they have been than they are today i get all of those sentiments and actually i agree with all of them too what is it that president biden doesn't get in terms of all of those things because frankly the door i mean not only do the taliban have tens of billions of dollars worth of up-to-date american military equipment but the chinese communist party now have access to vast mineral reserves and especially lithium, which if we are going to go down the electric car route, you know, that load that's in Afghanistan becomes very, very important. Uh, we're yet to see what role, we're yet to see what role Iran or Russia will play. Um, but, but how is it, how is it, given the import of these things, how is it that a Democrat president has done this, uh, made these decisions and not even thought for a moment to consult with his allies. I, I don't understand it, frankly. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago. The Chinese are far smarter than all of us, you know, for some reason. They've been all over Africa, grabbing up as much cobalt as possible, which with lithium are the major ingredients and putting together electric cars, and frankly, using our mobile phones and other related equipment. They are doing something that no one's paying attention to, and the West is asleep and has not done what's appropriate. As for the Democrats, the United States is going through a major demographic shift. And the danger here is that in that shift, which is much more pronounced, it's much, we're, we're becoming a non-white nation. Um, and the interests of the people who are dominating the Democratic Party are in Africa, the Caribbean, in Asia, less in Europe, but they'd better wake up. If anything happens to the Mediterranean basin, the Brits and the Americans understood this, note the Truman Doctrine in 1948. If anything happens to those great waterways, note the convoys that fed the Brits and kept the Americans in action in the beginning of the Second World War and prepared the British to at least begin to do what they had to do to stop Hitler. Anything happens to those sea lanes, anything happens to that commerce, the world will be a much different place. And our children, not necessarily those of us on this call, but our children will likely be eating grass. That's the facts of life. And the Americans will ultimately wake up or they won't. I think they will. I've not heard it explained in this way before. So the big demographic shifts that are going on within America that are reflected within the Democrat Party means a change, a shift of emphasis and priorities, yeah? No question about it. You can see it. You're going to start seeing it in activities by the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is now run the United States House of Representatives, forgive me, a, a committee chair, Greg Meeks, who is an African-American man from New York, and his priorities may be different. That's of the norm. The question is, will people understand the larger worldview? The Chinese are beating us, all of us in Africa right now. The Chinese want to do what they want to do. You know, it's, it's the Thucydides trap. Some may say it's not uh, worth looking at, but nothing's changed since Athens and Sparta went at it a long, long time ago. And the power that wasn't in power wanted to take that power. And that's what we face. And when the Americans finally wake up and understand that, it will be an important day for the Brits the same way that the UK stood with the Americans and the Americans stood with the UK against the Soviet threat and protecting NATO to protect the UK. Nothing's changed. The only question is when the alarm clock will go off in the American brain. So we need to reset this relationship, Frank, yeah? We need to reset it to make sure the Americans understand how significant it is for their future not just only for the mem the wonderful people of the UK. Well, you couldn't have put that more clearly or with more passion. Thank you very much indeed, Hank, for joining us here on GB News.
where do we stand with the US-UK special relationship? Is it completely broken? Is it just badly bruised? One thing for certain is a lot of Brits are really very, very angry at President Biden's behaviour. Well, we're hearing from all sides of this debate, and joining me now is Mary Kissel, former senior policy advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mary, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Pleasure to be here. Now, I know that in the past you were fairly critical of Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy initiatives, particularly in the early days of his presidency, and you're very independently minded. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to these things, um, but can you understand why, you know, from senior cabinet ministers to the prime minister to vast swathes of our media in this country, we find it incomprehensible. Yes, we know we're smaller than America, but we find it incomprehensible, given and there've been exceptions, but that since 1917 we've been pretty much side by side in many of the great conflicts in the world. We have a level of intelligence sharing between us that I think is unrivaled anywhere in the Western world in, in, in terms of trust, particularly. Uh, and we just can't believe that a president of the USA would have done this, would have done the unconditional withdrawal without telling us, without telling our NATO allies, and that when the British Prime Minister rings early on a Monday morning to try and talk to the President of the USA, he doesn't get a phone call back until late the next evening. So can you understand why we're feeling pretty blooming angry with what we've always thought to be our closest ally? Uh, the simple answer is yes, Nigel, I can, because the vast majority of Americans feel exactly the same way in overwhelming majorities, there simply is no excuse for this kind of shambolic drawdown, which, let's be frank, um, cost many hundreds of lives, including 13 U.S. servicemen and women, uh, and will unfortunately cost many more lives to come for absolutely no reason at all. And, you know, I've heard this claim, Nigel, that Britain is a middling power. We're a small nation. No, you're not. You're the fifth largest economy in the world. You're absolutely critical um, to, you mentioned our intelligence sharing, our defense efforts around the world. We are tied at the hip in terms of our uh, trade and our two um, very copathetic economies. Um, we have cultural exchanges. Britain is immensely important to the United States. And I have to say, just speaking for myself, but presumably for many other Americans who love Britain and are friends of Britain, um, I was absolutely horrified. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that on the international stage uh, that Biden's reputation is severely damaged. I mean, this, this was the man that turned up at the G7 in Cornwall um, midsummer this year uh, to be hailed, greeted, you know, this lovely, delightful, charming Joe Biden. America is back and we're going to, you know, all of the tough things that Trump said to NATO, like they should pay the membership fee. There'll be no more of that. Um, and actually... Uh, this is the most America first policy uh, that we've seen for many, many decades. America first. And I just wonder, though, Mary, even though we're angry and even though I think it does actually threaten the future viability of NATO, I genuinely do. And I, I mean, I sort of hope I'm wrong, but I, I feel that right now. But maybe domestically in America, where a lot of people were tired with a 20-year war that had cost a couple of trillion dollars and two and a half thousand American lives, maybe it won't damage Biden too much internally. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think it's 
uh, never a good thing to try to predict the future because I'm usually wrong. Um, but you know, in terms of Afghanistan, I think we should look at what the Trump administration was doing and that record, just to give your audience a sense of what might have been possible here. Because remember, um, we started with about 15,000 forces in Afghanistan. The president then went to Secretary Pompeo and said, I wanna draw down the troops, but at the same time, I wanna make sure that we're protecting America's national interests. So please go do that. And so what did the secretary do? He went to both sides. We did a deal with the Afghan government, which is never talked about, and a deal with the Taliban. Why were we able to achieve drawing down from 15,000 troops to 2,500 troops? Because we exerted pressure and leverage over both sides. Every time the Taliban misbehaved, we killed them. And every time the Ghani government misbehaved, we took away their corrupt money. And so we were making progress. We were able to draw down troops to a level where we had no American casualties in more than a year. And every time that there was a drawdown, we stopped, we assessed, we said, is it safe for us to draw down? Can the Afghan national forces really step in here? What is the role of NATO? How are we doing? There were constant assessments. And every single morning, the secretary sat down and the first briefing he got was the safety of American civilians. Every single morning. That was the first thing he cared about. It's the first thing he thought about when he got up. And it was the last thing he thought about when he went to bed. And the contingency planning that Biden did, let me tell you, was zero. Because the contingency planning team at the State Department that would have done this work was put on ice earlier this year. Are you telling me that had Trump been reelected that his withdrawal from Afghanistan would have been different to this. Because what Joe Biden said, and he says it at every time he does a press conference, uh, a press conference without questions, incidentally, but he always says, I'm following what Donald Trump agreed. What's the difference between the two? President Biden had absolutely no problem breaking the maximum pressure campaign on Iran that we had put in place, breaking the pressure that we had put on the Chinese Communist Party, withdrawing um, from uh, the uh, WHO, he's happy to get back in and he's happy to get the Paris Common Court. For goodness sakes, Nigel, he's the president of the United States. He can do whatever he likes and it should be done in the interest of the American people and our allies and our interests abroad. So that's just a fiction. Secondly, in terms of what might have been different, I don't like to compare fact with hypotheses or fact with prediction. We should look with fact versus fact. The facts are that when President Trump was in office, we had, again, zero American casualties. Afghanistan's national army was taking all of the casualties. And I mean, there were some casualties, weren't there? There were some American casualties. Of course there casualties. were. Yeah. No, there were zero American casualties from last year through to January of January 20, 2021. Um, we had a great relationship with NATO. We were in constant communication. As you know, um, we were constantly talking to our British friends. Um, so, you know, that's the fact. Now, look at what has happened under President Biden. They've rewarded the Russians. They've gone soft on the Chinese. They have appeased and are continuing to appease Iran, which, by the way, fits into the Afghanistan picture because Iran is harboring Al Qaeda's leadership. So if you want to talk about the revival of global jihadism under Joe Biden, you cannot ignore the appeasement and, of and, Iran, which is a side of the story that no one is talking and about. And on top of those problems, the relationship with the United Kingdom is now in a bad place. Is it broken irreparably, Mary, or can we get this fixed? 
I think that the special relationship runs far deeper than Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. Um, as I said earlier, um, you cannot underestimate the incredibly close ties between our defense communities, our intelligence communities, our private industry, um, again, the cultural ties that we have, we have no greater friend. And so I think it is damaged for sure um, because you cannot look at the way that this was handled. And by the way, the absolute insistence of President Biden that no one be fired, no one take responsibility. In fact, he's making this ignominious defeat into a victory based on the public statements that he's made. You can't look at that and say that relationship hasn't been damaged, but is it irreparably damaged? I don't think so. We have elections in this country, and I think the ties between our two great nations run deep. Mary Kissel, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on GB News. Well, joining me today on Talking Pints is somebody who served as the 30th White House Press Secretary and the White House Communications Director in 2017 under Donald Trump. It is someone who was very well known to us on our screens back in 2017. Welcome to Talking Pints, Sean Spicer. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's a little early in the morning here. <laughs> good Irishman, there's never too early to have a good drink. <laughs> You're the first person I've done this with virtually. And the reason is, because normally they come into the studio or we meet in a pub in London or whatever it is. But the reason is we're, we're doing a special today, a special investigation into the US-UK relationship called by some over the years special relationship and we're asking is it broken just how much damage has been done but before we get to that uh, Sean you know you you suddenly appeared on our screens you know here in the United Kingdom at the time of Trump's inauguration it was towards the end of January 2017 uh, it was the big story of the world and kind of it seemed for a period of time, Sean, that we saw as much of you on the television as we did President Trump. And, and, but you'd kind of, you'd spent your life really as a backroom operator, hadn't you? Yeah, I mean, in fact, um, I, I, I did a lot of, the last three years of the Bush administration, I did a lot of trade work. Uh, Peter Mandelson over there uh, and I had traveled the world um, when he was working on behalf of the EU and, and I worked for Susan Schwab, our US trade rep, but I had spent, um, 20 something years as a communicator speaking on behalf of politicians and military officials. So, but it, it's, it was always to your point that behind the scenes piece, I joke, um, if you've ever been to the States, you'll know that in every mall and, and in most count counties, they have a, uh, a men's store called Joseph A. Banks. And I, I used to joke that I had done five, 600 media interviews and the closest I'd ever gotten recognized was in the sweater section of a Joseph A. Banks at Christmas time once. And, um, and suddenly, you know, to your point, it, it went from like zero to 60 in, in literally 24 hours. I remember the day that it was December 22nd at noontime, I was in Trump Tower the release went out that I would be named the president's press secretary and the screens in the office all were on different channels, all lit up. And, and by that afternoon, I'd gone out to dinner with my family and, and people were just stopping. And it was recognizability that I had never fathomed. Yeah, no, it certainly happened. And don't think it just happened in America. It happened everywhere. And, and you became oh, this, yeah, I, I mean, you became this figure here and, 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 and some were a bit merciless and some teased you and, it sort of, it kind of got off to a tough start, didn't it really? Yes. And I, I mean, I remember there was a, a, 
uh, a weekend in March, I'd worked on a Saturday in the White House. And on the way home, there's an Apple store in Georgetown, which, you know, I, I figured my wife's birthday is at the end of uh, March, I was going to buy her uh, a watch because she had done so much for, for the family and my kids. And I went in and one woman just grabs her iPhone and she starts coming up to me and like doing this. And, and I'm just like, oh God. And I'm just trying, I mean, literally checking out. I have like seconds to go. And she posted it to Twitter and she had like 16, 17 followers. And I thought, okay, whatever. By Monday morning, I walked into the office and, and the President Trump looks at me and he goes, Sean, what were you doing in the Apple store? I mean, it had gone viral. Um, and she had just taken off about how she thought that the president was a traitor and I was complicit because I was working for him. And, but it was, you know, some of it was warranted. I've made mistakes. I, I own up to them. Uh, some of it, I think, was was a bit personal um, and vitriol uh, that was necessarily warranted because I chose to work for somebody that people didn't like. Had you served as press secretary for any other president, I don't think you'd have had that treatment um, in no. that store in Georgetown. Um, and, I mean, the sheer level of vitriol uh, that was put against Trump, you know, I mean, even really from the day that he announced his candidacy, you know, he suddenly went from being this all-American hero, you know, the big guy from, from New York, the, the big TV show, The Apprentice, he was a very popular figure and suddenly became a very unpopular figure because he was pushing what were seen to be very conservative views. Sure, when you look back on that period, um, I mean, how was your relationship with, with Trump? Because, I mean, they were very stressful times, weren't they? And he's, he's a, how can I put it? You know, I know him reasonably well, too. I mean, he's not, exactly, he's not exactly frightened of saying what he thinks, is he? No. No, uh, the first time I got reamed out, um, it, it, you know, one of my colleagues said, well, did he call you this and this and this? And I said, no. And he goes, oh, well, that doesn't matter. Um, it, it took a while getting used to. He is a challenge. He's tough. He's... Um, he, he's demanding, and um, I think for for good reason. He understood that he had limited time in office, and he promised the American people he's going to get certain things done. I will tell you to your question, um, there were some good days and there were some not so good days. Um, when you disappoint somebody, I'm you know I grew up, I have Catholic guilt. You know when when I feel like I've fallen short or um, I've disappointed somebody, it hurts. And when you're working for the president of the United States and by extension the American people, and you feel like you screwed up. Uh, it, it's, I mean, you can't help, I hope you should take it very personally. Um, but since I've left the White House, I tell people I haven't had a bad conversation with him then. He's been extremely supportive of my career. He's been uh, a great sounding board and, uh, and a friend, uh, you know, but as a boss, he's, he's tough. And, um, but like I said, I mean, sometimes I, I, I will say that sometimes I, I don't think it was entirely warranted, but in a lot of cases, you know, like I said, he, he sort of came in and made it very clear, I've got things to do. And if you don't do your best every day, then we're not going to get the things that I want done done. Yeah, well, I'm very pleased to hear that you've still got a good relationship with him. That is excellent. Now, he's been succeeded, of course, now. Um, an election that has sparked a lot of controversy and a... A Republican movement, parts of which, nine months later, are still going on about the integrity of the election. This is not the way forward for the Republicans, is it? Well, I think that I divide this into different categories. I think that there are, if you look at states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, come to mind, where they change the rules going up to the election in ways that did not seem to follow 
the law. In other words, a state, excuse me, a county official said that we're going to allow ballots to come in in this manner up until this time. That's not permitted by law. Um, and, and I think that that needs to ensure that it doesn't happen again. You can't do anything, whether it's play a recreational game, a board game, or, or run for office and have somebody in the middle of the game say, here's how we're going to change the rules. I mean, um, that's just not, it's not fair. It's not democratic. And I think that Republicans have a right to stand for those things. Some of the other things that people are chasing, I, I think that, you know, so far, a lot of the proof hasn't borne out, but there is a right to stand up for counties and states to ensure that they follow the rules going forward. I, don't, John, I get that. I mean, I've been one of the biggest critics in this country over 20 years of us opening up to postal voting, early mail out ballots, right. as you call them there. So, I, you know, I get it. I just feel that, yes, trying to make sure state by state that the rules are clear and fair for next time round is a good, positive thing to do. But I just sometimes think to myself, uh, you know, if these if these figures keep going on about what went well, wrong, well, to the extent that you're like, look, 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 I think you're right in the sense that any political party or candidate that's not advancing a very positive and forward thinking agenda. In other words, people people hire, you know, whether it's you over in the UK or, or our folks here, whether it's at the state or or federal level, because you're going to do things to make their lives, their families, their businesses, their communities, their states in this country better. And so, if you don't have an agenda to do that, and you're just you know, spending the majority of your time griping about the past, um, you're going to not be successful as a, as a candidate or a party. That being said, I do think that there's enough concern about ensuring that we don't set ourselves up for failure going forward, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to have a positive forward-looking agenda that ensures that we stand for principles that I think attract more and more people. Now, Afghanistan, um, you know, President Trump, of course, from 2009 was saying in public, why are we still there? You know, so there'd been a, a very strong movement on both sides of the pond to try to end this. But of course, in the end, it was a question of how you end it and on what terms you end it. And, you know, we are pretty angry over here. Large sections of our media, many senior figures, I just can't believe, you know, I know we're much smaller than you, but we just can't believe that our most trusted ally has treated us with such contempt in terms of a unilateral withdrawal without even consulting. And I, and I absolutely know that Trump would have been on the phone because one thing he was very good at was talking to people. But Sean, what does this do? What does this do to, the, to what we think is the US-UK special relationship? Is it a special relationship? Does, do we really matter to America anymore? So there's a couple of things to break down on that. Number one, um, I, I think that there's a common thread. The feelings that you and so many of, of your countrymen have are shared by so many of us over here, how this was handled. Um, and, and it is a straw man argument. The idea that there is a genuine agreement, not just bipartisan in this country, but as you put across the pond and in so many other countries that the time had come to, to get out. But I think that how it's done is, is where the argument falls apart. President Biden saying, well, President Trump wanted to get out. So what? So did so many world leaders. So did so many other, you know, uh, think tank professionals and analysts. But that's how you do it matters. I mean, it's, it's literally like you and I saying, hey, let's have a pint. And then saying, yeah, but, you know, you didn't say to stop. So I had 50. I mean, that's, you're, you're sort of making a false argument. And that's what the president's doing now. Secondly, I do think that the, the special relationship extends beyond the politicians and the policy, meaning that there's a shared bond between American citizens and British citizens. We always recognize where we came from, the special relationship that we have, 
with, with the UK. Um, and so that will never be broken. I think administrations will come and go where they will either reaffirm and strengthen that relationship or in some cases not. But um, you, you had highlights and I, I look at Reagan and Thatcher as a particular one. And then you have some, some potential lower lights. Um, we'll see where the, the Johnson-Biden relationship ends up. But I do think that our countries have a shared relationship. Um, and the last thing I would just say is, is how this has been handled on so many levels. Um, I, I just, the comparisons to Trump are stupid in my opinion, because as a businessman, he would have never left half of the stuff over there. It's just anyone who spent 10 seconds around him knows that he would have never left the weapons and the infrastructure and the equipment. Um, but I, I just, I, I, it, it sickens me to watch how we did this, how we dealt, how we failed to notify Britain, how we put 13 soldiers in harm's way. I mean, there's just so many facets of wrong that have occurred over the past week. Yeah, no, it's been pretty awful. Well, Sean, you're busy still in the political sphere. You're presenting a show on Newsmax. Um, are we going to see Sean Spicer back in the glare of the spotlight at some point again in the future? Sure. Uh, I have, like I used to mention, I have a show on Newsmax every night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. The cool thing is anyone in the UK or around the world can watch it for free. You can just go to NewsmaxTV.com. I've got a new book called Radical Nation coming out in October, which yeah. highlights the Biden administration. Um, and, and, but I think that's where I'm comfortable, Nigel. I mean, I, I didn't anticipate as we started this conversation ever being the guy in, in front of the camera. Um, but I've enjoyed, I, I'm lucky to go to work every day, have people like you and others come on a show and have a conversation every single weeknight. I, I honest to God, couldn't be happier with what I get to do now. And um, I've loved what I've been able to do in the past. It's been an honor in so many ways, but the intensity, the scrutiny is something that I will be willing to allow somebody else. <laughs> well, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Sean, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on Talking Pints. Great, thank you very much.